0: Hi, folks. This is Brian Moriarty, your Nerds on History co-host. On our podcast, we have shared lots of interesting facts, like the fact that George Washington was a crossdresser and that Third Guard Marshall knew jujitsu. If you find those things insightful and funny, well, have we got a podcast for you? Nerds on Film. It's like the Nerds on History podcast, but with a lot more swear words and no filter whatsoever. Enjoy. Hey, well, thanks for thanks for filling in this week. Really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, my pleasure.
0: So, you know, I'm sorry. This is this is kind of odd, but before we get started, um, what's on your brain? Do you mind if I asked what shoes you're wearing?
1: Uh, what shoes I'm wearing?
0: Yeah, I know it seems kind of um, odd, but you know, I've just been trying to figure yeah, out.
1: um I'm
0: trying to figure out who shot Eric, and
1: okay,
0: I, I just I, I don't want to point fingers. I really don't, but just I distinctly remember a a clickety cloppety sound. From the shoes,
1: Uh-huh. a clippity cloppity sound, I don't, don't think it's very say. funny,
0: I'm just saying, but
1: oh well, I mean, um
0: I, and I just'm just when a man sure. asks
1: a woman what kind of shoes she wears, the woman can automatically assume, are you one of those weird feet people that you know I mean, I'm sorry, but that's I, beside
0: I, the point, I'm trying to solve okay,
1: no, a crime man, here. I wear vans, okay. <laughs> I can't last a minute in heels. You won't catch me dead wearing heels. I mean, it's not going to happen. So no, I don't wear high heels. I never do. And you want you want to see? I'll put my feet on the table right now. Check out those beauties. Oh yeah. Wow. Almost half inches of them. That's not a heel. <laughs> so no.
0: Well, there you have it. Yeah. Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Brian Moriarty, and uh, as you guys may have been listening, Eric Brickmont is in a coma. No, I'm kidding. He, <laughs> yeah, he's been on paternity leave, and we were with Chamel. In fact, actually, we have exciting news because uh, Amelia was born on Wednesday, on Wednesday of, of last, of last week. week. Exactly. Two days after we posted the episode. So, yeah, very, very exciting. And uh, eight pounds, three ounces. Oh,
1: she's beautiful.
0: Amelia, Josephine, Susanna. Oh. So, yeah, we're all very excited. She is gorgeous. Yeah. She is beautiful. She's She's
1: got this thick hair and, oh, these little fingers, they're so cute.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it's very common for people to say, oh, 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 babies are cute. And there are some people who say, well, no, babies are ugly. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm a pretty non-biased person. I will totally... I will not say anything when there's an ugly baby. Mm. Usually, that my silence is my guilt. Oh. But, but Amelia was truly a beautiful baby.
1: She's one of a kind, and she just has this glow about her. And the, I think I th- that's
0: the jaundice, actually. Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, that's a shame. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yay. Sick baby joke.
0: <laughs> it's fine. I think Eric will, will, oh, will appreciate of
1: course, it. No, you can just tell that Eric and, um, Martha are just so happy and so just in love with the new addition and the girls got to meet her finally and they just oh my god the pictures I'm dying
0: the beautiful well by the way how are you
1: I'm well thank you <laughs> yeah.
0: and uh and I should probably mention who you are um yeah <laughs> so joining me in the cave today is my nerds on film co-host yeah. and actually we've known each other for a long time but mm-hmm. uh joining us today is Roxy Noberry
1: Hello. <laughs>
0: Roxy and I go back to college. We we met mm-hmm. uh, doing theater, doing yes. theater.
1: Yeah, the theater, the community theater stage. Yeah, and um, then
0: we, we'd fallen out of connection for a couple of years. And then we reconnected only like about a year or two ago back in college.
1: I know. We ended up at the same university. Trans, the whole transfer system really did us well in that sense. And then we worked together at uh, at our college and did some more theater Stuff yeah. together. I still remember you brushing the gray into my hair for <laughs> my right. character of Miss yeah. Bates and Emma. That yeah. was fun. <laughs> well, it's,
0: it's so 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 silly. So I I I always went into college wanting to be an actor. Yeah. And I still do. I still you know the podcast is fun. This is hopefully what will help me do the day job so that I can be an actor. Yeah. Um, but I had to get a, a makeup credit mm. uh, or do a, a lab hours for it. So.
1: Yeah, he stuck uh, around and we yeah. had a good time. That's interesting that you bring up our college experience, because um, even though I was involved in theater, my main passion was really psychology. Mm -hmm. Uh, I majored in it, and I earned my Bachelor of Arts in it in 2012, and I'm actually currently pursuing a uh, career as a counseling psychologist, so um, an MFT license. And um, counseling has always been my passion, and working with kids, and just like working in that field and in that same vein I've always been fascinated by um the psychology of serial killers yeah and the psychology of uh those types of stories and the murder mysteries of those and all of the true crime and I mean, I can't get enough of it. You know, my favorite movie is Silence of the Lambs. Like, yeah. you want to talk about criminal psychology? <laughs> like,
0: so you want to, you almost like, your dream job would be like the forensic profiler or the, like, the criminal psychologist kind of deal.
1: Um, no. no? My dream job would just be a child therapist. Okay. But my fantasy world That's is. That's what I yes. meant to say, the fantasy
0: world. You're the. <laughs> I'm you're not the detective, lying, you. Brian.
1: I once spent an entire week watching mini documentaries about serial sur- killers. <laughs>
0: well, okay. So, okay, fine. So you want to, you know, be. Your fantasy is that you want to be a forensic psychologist. I want to be Batman in my fantasies. Hey, man, that's cool. So you know what? There's there's common ground there. That's (laughs) fine. there is. Yeah, and besides, yours is less ridiculous because yours Um. doesn't involve wearing a cape.
1: Yeah, the, no capes.
0: <laughs>
1: no capes. <laughs> no capes. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, no, I, I wouldn't have nothing to do with that. <laughs> yeah, so, um. <laughs>
0: well, anyway, uh, I'm glad you're here. Thank I really you, am. I am
1: too. <laughs>
0: and um, why don't we get into some listener feedback before we jump in, shall we?
1: Absolutely. Em? This week in listener feedback.
0: Okay, our first piece of feedback comes from Shirley from Ontario. Hello, Shirley. Her subject is hi, and we say hi. Hi. <laughs> How are you? Uh, message says, Hi, I love both the podcasts, and I'm currently working through Nerds on History since I've been all caught up with Nerds on Film. Right on. Mm. That's not an easy task now. We're 75 episodes, 77 episodes in almost at this point. Incredible. She said, I downloaded your Jack the Ripper episode, and just after I had seen a Star Trek uh, TOS season two episode in which Scotty is framed for the murders that were committed by Jack the Ripper, who at the time looks like a lawyer from Rigel 4. <laughs> anyway, you asked what were the listeners' ideas about Jack, and all I could think of was Star Trek. And then uh, she actually goes on to do this lovely bit about Nerds on Film, which we read on the... Uh, on podcast that corresponding
1: Co- podcast
0: about a week ago by the time you listened to this episode mm-hmm. and then she closes with looking forward to many more podcasts they're really fantastic ps sarah sorry for my terrible grammar but it's hard to type on an ipod you know i <laughs> I, I love when our listeners get to share their own nerdy like nature with us and the oh, fact yeah. that some, someone was able to to connect jack the ripper with star trek
1: <laughs> it really gives you an insight into the creativity right. of it all <laughs> and
0: i know if eric were here he would be like <laughs> he would just be chuckling at that because yeah. Eric is the only person that I know mm-hmm. that has seen every single episode of Star Trek.
1: Wow! Yeah,
0: and every single movie. Damn! So he he knows his stuff. He's a die he's a diehard Trekkie and a diehard Hoovian. Ooh! Yeah. So just, awesome. The more Trek we see, the funnier it gets.
1: Oh, that's cool.
0: Oh, and by the way, folks, my dear friend Kyla just texted me. So we we've been on the History Corner uh, page of the iTunes Store for a couple weeks now. Cool. And. Now, like we are further up on that list. Like if you go to us,
1: oh. it's
0: like we're, we're on the first icons you see. It's a small win because nice. we're we're on the same list we were before. We're just higher up on that list, <laughs> but um, that's pretty sweet. I think.
1: I think that's what is that an increase in in viewership? We have
0: definitely seen an increase in in viewership. We've cool. seen um, several hundred more downloads per since we've we've been on the, the iTunes Store. So it's been been oh, very big.
1: Man, that's awesome.
0: Yeah, yeah, we're super excited about it. And a lot more subscribers, for that matter, too. So, very, very cool. You were mentioning that you were obsessed with with serial killers. I'm
1: not obsessed with serial I'm obsessed with the um, mythology of serial killers, I guess, is the better way to put it. Because if I say that I'm obsessed with serial killers, I'm just going to sound like a creep. <laughs> <laughs> um, which I am not, I assure you. <laughs>
0: It's wow. okay. I've seen Only your... a
1: creep would say something like that. I've, I've, oh, God. I've, I've seen
0: your shrines and your dolls. Have, <laughs> there's no, there's no judgment <laughs> oh, coming from man, me here.
1: You caught me red-handed. Gosh darn it. Okay, but, um.
0: <laughs> but what's interesting? There's been a lot of murders that have been unsolved. Mm-hmm. We talked about Jack the Ripper. That's the most famous one, I think.
1: Oh yeah. There's so
0: many we could cover. We couldn't really do it in one month. So we thought, well, let's let's bring in an old friend. Let's bring in the wheel of history it's so beautiful it is and it keeps getting more advanced every time You could
1: have dusted it
0: yeah <laughs> wait i think actually it's saying something hold on what's it say? <laughs> you know what that's none of your damn business <laughs> he says here yeah well if you don't clean me i guess that speaks about other parts you don't clean i'm like wow dude <gasps> really that's
1: rude Snarky, snarky, snarky. And for the
0: record, I scrub behind my ears. (laughs) Okay?
1: Uh huh. All right, anyway. Little sassafras.
0: No kidding. But the wheel sometimes has an attitude. Have you been drinking tonight? No, surprisingly not. Well. Sober as as a uh, judge, apparently. Well.
1: (laughs) This is going to be interesting. Maybe he doesn't like me. Maybe he's just. Maybe he's jealous. Oh, are you jealous? Uh,
0: according to what he just said, and, uh, I, or I'm i assuming it's a he. Who knows? Like, for <laughs> yeah, only... well, I mean. Yeah, it, it, it's an it, really, but.
1: Maybe he just misses Eric.
0: I don't know. You should read it for yourself. I think he might have it you.
1: Um, you. Let me see. I can't quite read past all of the dust and crud that's kind of covering the message. Oh, it says, kiss my... Set. oh oh excuse me i i can't read the rest of that that's inappropriate you know I'm, I'm feeling a little bit of animosity coming from the wheel i i don't know how i feel about this i'm feeling a little bit uncomfortable be you honest, know wheel all... all...
0: I, 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 I i acknowledge I'm, I'm... that we maybe have had some differences wheel but i think we need just to get through this episode <laughs> yeah
1: that... let's and work then... together
0: <laughs> and then we can we can talk about this later okay
1: I'll 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 let Brian spin you first if if that's okay if if it'll make you feel better.
0: Oh, th- there's no spinning of it now. It spins itself. It we
1: does. D- it's a self-spinner. Huh? It's a
0: self-spinning wheel.
1: <laughs> oh, you little smart little thing, you! Oh. <laughs>
0: um. All right, wheel. Have let's have at it. Hmm. <laughs> Haha. So, the first topic of the night... What do we got? The Shroud of Turin. <gasps> Ooh. Yeah. Do yeah. tell. So, do you know what the Shroud is?
1: I have some familiarity with it, yes.
0: Okay. So, for those who may not, the Shroud of Turin is considered a relic by the Catholic Church. It is a linen cloth that bears the image of Jesus. Now, the question of where it comes from is, the the in essence, the the mystery behind it. For... Those non-Christians, let me go ahead and fill you in. Um, The claim is that the actual clean linen cloth was one that Joseph of Arimathea wrapped on the body of Christ, uh, as it says in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy Jew at the time of Christ, one of Christ's followers, Mm. And who is believed to be the one who actually paid for Christ's tomb because Jesus wouldn't because tombs were very expensive wow. at that point in time so um, basically Joseph of Arimathea was the one who saw to it that Christ had a proper burial okay and part of that also includes having him wrapped as would have been traditional for a Jewish burial at hmm. the time um, though they didn't have time to fully anoint his body because of the it was the approaching sunset and it was the Sabbath so they had to they had to kind of Leave it for a couple days, and then they'd come back to it. Wow. Yeah, that's that, and you know, of it pro, pro, uh, provides the the whole them wanting to go back to the tomb Sunday morning for the resurrection to have taken place. Mm-hmm. So that presents that nice little dramatic moment. Uh,
1: wow. In
0: the so this linen, which is approximately thirteen and a half feet long and four and a half feet wide, bears the markings of both the front and the behind of. Of a man that looks very much like jesus i mean he's got long hair he's got the beard he's got the crown of thorns on his head so uh and it was first uh mentioned in the year 1360. so Mm -hmm. given the time this was made it's it would be highly plausible that everyone one would believe without question that this was the burial cloth of, of christ but it's actually been contested for just about as long believe it or not
1: no kidding
0: yeah. Uh, so, first of all, it was actually almost destroyed, too. In 1532, oh. there was a fire in the the abbey where it was being held. Uh-huh. And the monks, thankfully, saved it enough time. But the silver case that it was in, it was getting so hot from the flames, that it actually started to melt.
1: Oh, no. Yeah.
0: So, li- liquid metal actually, like, got burned singe marks Ooh. on the shroud itself. So, there's a couple of burn marks on it. Thankfully, the, the shroud was not completely, completely destroyed.
1: Oh, thank goodness.
0: Yeah. Wow. Um And... Ever since 1576, has been in an abbey in Turin,
1: mm-hmm. Italy. Uh, in yep.
0: Turino, yes, yes, uh, which was ho- the host of the Olympics a couple of years ago, right? Yeah. In 2006, the Winter Olympics.
1: Nice.
0: At times, the popes have spoken of its of its authenticity. Uh, Julius II, for example, made one reference to it and then said that uh, the most famous shroud in which our Savior was wrapped uh, when he lay in the tomb, and which is now honorably devoted, uh, devoutly preserved in a silver casket. Wow. Yeah. And basically, its authenticity was never really questioned since then until 1898, which, when it was first taken out to be photographed. And when they took it out to be photographed, what they discovered was that the image on the cloth was, in fact, not a positive, but a negative. Mm. Yeah. Uh, And they only discovered this because they were learning about photography at that point. They had only learned that you could only get a negative image, and you had to reverse it to get the positive image Mm -hmm. out of it. That the negative, quote-unquote, was the positive of the image like the light seemed much more natural the texture seemed much more natural okay. so so what was on that cloth was somehow put there by something else wow yeah not- so
1: what i'm wondering then is to the naked eye mm-hmm. what does the cloth look like can well, you actually see the image itself i've seen pictures where to the naked eye this image of the cloth is Oh yeah, see, it's much more kind of diluted and, and softened, and the edges are. I'm looking at it right now. It's it's a fascinating image, um, but then you look at the negative image of it too, and that one is much more defined, and it almost looks like the skeletal system of like a person's face. Like you see it much bolder in that photographic image, I think.
0: Right, right, and that's really where the where the controversy starts to occur because now that they're saying, well, this is a negative, not a positive mm-hmm. of it. Well, now they're trying to figure out, well, how could this have been put there to begin with
1: yeah it says here that the details of the image of the sh- on the shroud are not easily distinguishable by naked eye and were first observed after the after the advent of photography in 1898 Correct. an amateur photographer named secondo pia was allowed to photograph the shroud and he, he took the first photograph of the shroud on the evening of may 28th in 1898
0: and here's what's more interesting, too. That was the, the more recent time when it's happened. And we'll, we'll touch base with that in just a second. Okay. As far back as 1389, only 30 years after the Shroud was yeah. first mentioned, people started to dispute it. In fact, there was a bishop, the Bishop of Troye. Uh, I might be saying it wrong, but it's a province in, in France. Mm-hmm. Back when the papacy was in France at this point, uh, when the church was in based out of Avignon as opposed to Rome, mm-hmm. the bishop appealed to the Pope Clement the Seventh. And basically, he said that he had declared it was the work of an artist who had confessed to him that he had painted it, um, yeah. and no, he didn't mean it maliciously. In uh-huh. fact, it was not uncommon in this period of time for when they were doing the Passion Plays around Lent and Easter that they would do these elaborate preparations for it. So having a barrel cloth, since it was in the scriptures, they would, they would recreate that. And according to this bishop, this painter confessed to painting on it. And that's all well and good. But now when we get to the modern era, when now it's piqued the interest of modern science, yeah. as we start to analyze it, we don't see any signs of paint on the image. Oh, man. So what's baffled us is, well, so if this was, maybe maybe he was confusing with other burial cloths that were also painted. But maybe. But nevertheless, how does this image get on it? We still don't know quite how it got on it. All we can develop are theories to how it might have gotten there. Mm-hmm. We know for sure it wasn't painted. We know there's no signs of ink. It's not burned on either because there there are no scorch marks uh, in the fibers of the fabric. Mm-hmm. But what one person has theorized, and I don't have the article to, to pull up, but there was a special on the History Channel that talked about it, was it was, it was imprinted using a camera obscura.
1: Oh, man.
0: Yeah, yeah. So for those who don't know what the camera obscura is, it's the scientific principle that when you shine light through a, a peephole, you get uh, an inverted image of it. On the surface that you're looking at, so right. it basically someone basically developed a giant medieval camera, where someone using the right photosensitive materials, mm-hmm. uh, by treating this linen with it, could have taken an image and therefore processed it onto a clean linen surface
1: on a burial shroud though. Well, I mean, there's nothing dis-
0: that distinctifies. The validity is that, is, that, exactly. is that even a word is it distinctifies even a word.
1: Sounds like it. Okay.
0: <laughs> There's nothing that distinctifies a piece of burial cloth over any other kind of cloth of linen. It's just one long piece of linen that was used for the purposes of burying somebody, or okay. at least allegedly. So, in theory, someone could have d- used it to recreate it. Yes, mm. there were lots of relics around the period of the 14th century that were that were completely faked. Wow. Yeah. So that's why a lot of people believe this to be a hoax. And then finally, in the 20th century, with the, the advent of radiocarbon dating, they determined it was only 700 years old. So there's no way it could have been the burial cloth of Christ. because that wow. would, Yeah.
1: It says 95% confidence. Yeah. Oh, my gosh.
0: Now, what I will say, though, is that I know if Eric were here, mm-hmm. he would want to talk about the potential inaccuracies of carbon dating. Because he used to work in a museum, right? He had people who were doing it on the, right. on the mummies and all the, on the relics they had there. So the moment you touch something, you've instantly contaminated mm-hmm. that. Uh, and because of that, that can throw off the accuracy of radiocarbon dating. And considering that this has been handled by monks, hand-to-hand, taken in and out of the case for centuries, mm-hmm. now this has been contaminated in detail from day one. So the accuracy of radiocarbon dating, you know, if it's something that hasn't been touched, if it's something that's been in a tomb and it's that's much more an, an accurate way of being able to use it because it has been the least corrupted by human
1: hands. Right.
0: But because the shroud's been exchanged so many times
1: mm-hmm. it, people didn't know what they were handling.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So um
1: Oh, that's so tricky. Oh my goodness.
0: Exactly, right? Yeah. Oh. And there's even there's a more modern theory that just came out this year actually or within the past couple of years, I should say, that say that it, it, there may have actually been radiation released from an earthquake in Jerusalem around the same period of time, about 33 A.D., that speculates, and let me say this, an 8.2 magnitude earthquake that rocked Jerusalem in 33 A.D., actually formed the image and distorted the results of the radiocarbon dating. What? Uh, Yeah. So this is coming from an article in USA Today, actually. Huh. The Telegraph, uh, who is the paper that originally ran the article, Right. uh, said that that scientists have previously floated around neutron radiation as the way the shroud, said to be the burial cloth of Jesus, uh, came to purportedly bear his image. Basically, what ends up happening is that if those neutron particles get absorbed into the fibers of the fabric it um, adds more carbon-14 isotopes to it, which, since we're dealing with a fabric that is primarily cellulose, Mm -hmm. so for those who... Didn't pay attention in science. First off, I don't know if you're listening to this podcast. Nerds
1: on science. <laughs> yeah.
0: But cellulose is a polymer. It's a series of sugars, and sugars are all based of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. Okay. So in other words, there's a heavy amount of carbon in the material of the linen.
1: So what does the radiation do to the carbon?
0: So neutrons, um, when you make an isotope, it means you add more neutron weight okay. to it. So even though neutrons don't actually have charge, they mm-hmm. can still radiate amongst other particles. So if this radiation had hit the shroud by osmosis, uh, these extra neutrons would then cling on to the carbon particles Mm -hmm. in the carbon fibers in the shroud. Therefore, by giving it more isotopes, it would make it look younger because the way carbon dating works is the fewer carbon-14 isotopes there are, the older something
1: pretends to be. So by adding more carbon, it made the date of the shroud... Seem younger than it possibly could be, correct ooh that is tricky, tricky tricky,
0: yeah, so it 's just a theory at this point, but it 's one that 's ran in major papers, and it 's also one that was a paper written in by the University of California,
1: oh my gosh a couple that's years so cool. ago
0: so there so there's a lot of legit research that 's going into this case in point mm-hmm. again, a huge unsolved mystery because we we still don 't know the origin of it, and there are a lot of people who are you know tried and true Catholics and Christians who believe that this is the burial cloth of Christ and there are a lot of people who think it's it's a total conspiracy but hokum it's hokum yeah as sheldon would say on the the,
1: the, the, the (laughs) big bang theory
0: (laughs) i also know if eric were here he would say this it's that's not the point right the point is what it symbolizes right it's a it's an honored relic of christianity this symbol doesn't take any of that away whether it's true or not whether Mm -hmm. it is his cloth or not
1: Eh, yeah he resurrected anyway so cloth is kind of null and void.
0: Yeah, <laughs> if you if you are of that <laughs> persuasion, exactly.
1: Exactly. If you believe in that.
0: <laughs> yeah. And in fact that's where where many faithful acknowledges the source of the image is the hmm. some sort of physical transformation that took place during the resurrection imparted the image onto the cloth.
1: I mean you look at the image of that face and you see the the thorns, you know, across the top of the yeah, head. And the blood. And
0: there's that's actual blood too. Oh my gosh. Blood stains. So they went into a lot of if it were a fake, there's lots of detail they went into to make it look
1: Fake. This is what we call reasonable doubt. Exactly. Oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sends shivers down my spine because you think like, I mean, looking at the shroud itself, I encourage you guys to just Google images of this shroud. It's really an incredible piece of history. I mean, you just look at the image, and it. I mean, going back to the point you made about how it could be a result of a photographic image because mm-hmm. of camera obscura. Um. I don't know. Looking at the details in this shroud, I really don't know how that is a viable idea because the detail involved in the... I mean, it's a pretty long piece of cloth, right? So for that camera to be able to capture that quality of an image onto this um, this cloth is, is... I don't know. I, yeah, I don't, it would, for, would have had a,
0: been a very elaborate setup. Yeah, yeah. Or
1: someone spent a lot of time... Yeah, <laughs> the, the history
0: special that, we, that I was watching um, tried to actually recreate... The, it wasn't
1: Mythbusters, was it? Ooh, what if Mythbusters did that? That'd be cool. <laughs> Get the
0: Mythbusters on the Shroud of Turin.
1: Totally. That'd yeah. be amazing.
0: Uh, but, you know, and you're right. It would have had to have been a very large image, number one. Yeah. Uh, uh, and it would have had to have been placed upside down. Of course, they could have just flipped the, the linen over again. But, yeah. Well. you. Know,
1: The specificity of the image, though. It's very, very minute, the details. Right. And when you think of old photography and the quality of that, sure, it could be specific. Sure, it was, you know, informative and well done. But I don't know, man. I still think it was buried with someone. And this looks like the remains of someone. And it just... Ah, uh, it gives me the heebie-jeebies.
0: Yeah, sure, sure, <laughs> sure. You bring up, and like you said, you br- it brings up reasonable doubt. Yeah. For sure. For absolutely. sure. And one that certainly inspires the imagination of many, so.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, people claim that it's the most studied and controversial object in human history. Yeah. And that's, that's saying something.
0: Definitely. And if, folks, if you're interested about this, we will post lots of other resources where you can go and you can find some other fascinating research about the Shri of Turin itself. Yeah. Roxy, let's let's have you give give a spin.
1: You think it won't bite me if I uh, approach it? I don't think so. Be, it'd be nice to me. I, think, be nice I think it's going to gonna behave today. Okay, all right, I'll go for it. Oh, <laughs> this is this is interesting, guys. Um, the babushka lady
0: the babushka lady
1: the babushka lady not to be confused with the mamushka from the adams family no we're talking about the babushka lady of the jfk assassination
0: okay so this is something i actually i know nothing about so please okay. by all means enlighten me
1: oh oh i will enlighten you sir so the babushka lady the story goes that it is the nickname of an unknown woman who was present during the assassination of John F. Kennedy in 1963, and she is seen in images that were captured at the site, and the reason she's referred to as the Babushka Lady is because she was seen wearing a scarf over her head and uh, um, which is really resembles a um, a
0: Russian grandmother.
1: Yes, that <laughs> yeah. the stylings of a Russian grandmother, or even my own dear Grammy. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you look at this woman and captured in the images there, and really the popular image of her is of her back, and she's facing the motorcade. So you see her standing next to um, the car that's moving along the street, and she actually has her arms up in a position that looks like she's holding a camera. So the assumed idea is that she was photographing John F. Kennedy during the moment that he's driving down the plaza and he gets shot. And so she actually has a view of the grassy knoll.
0: So she would potentially have evidence of who actually did the assassination. So she would
1: have a photographic eye view of the events that took place from the perspective of someone watching across the way. Yeah, so she could have possibly... Her photographs could have revealed new evidence to have proven that um, whoever the shooter was... It could have been Lee Oswald. It could have been so know, the, Russian CIA. Like. Right. So
0: this, this is kind of in the vein of the, was there a second gunman mm-hmm. kind of theory.
1: It totally supports that idea that whatever she photographed, um, and the sad thing is that they never uncovered her pictures, could have proven there to be a second shooter. Could have proven there to be so many more hints pointing at uh, what really happened. Because all wow. we really have is what, the Zapruder film? to show, you know, the actual assassination, and you see JFK and all that. But from her perspective, it's behind JFK. So the idea, though, is that um, when she was discovered in the photographs, um, she was never discovered. This woman never went to the FBI the day that it happened. She never turned in her photographs. But there is evidence to support that a photo developer actually... um, to develop some photographs that were taken from the perspective of someone who was in the position th- that uh, b- the babushka lady was in. So maybe those were the pictures, um, but they were never turned into the FBI or anything like that. Interesting. Um, so that's something th- to think about. But the babushka lady herself has never been formally identified, and that's the mystery. But one woman in particular goes by the name of Beverly Oliver, hmm. claimed to be the babushka lady. And she claimed this because...
0: So, first off, when did this happen? Yes. So,
1: Beverly Oliver came into fame um, in 1970. And she came forward and did interviews with uh, this researcher named J. Gary Shaw. And she claimed that she was there. But she was also a dancer and a singer at this club called the uh, Colony Club. It was a strip joint.
0: And... um, (laughs) It was was a strip joint. She
1: was a stripper. (laughs) Shepper so, um, and
0: Babushka should not go in the same sentence.
1: Uh, yeah. And the funny thing about that is that when you're comparing the claims that she made to the actual person and the evaluation of her claims, there's this whole website that's dedicated to devaluing all of her claims. It's pretty intensive, actually. They're saying that the Babushka lady herself, if you look at this image of her, it's a much older and stockier person. This person definitely looks, you know, like an older lady. But Beverly Oliver was much younger and much more... Um, had a much slighter body frame in 1963. So right there, that's kind of disclaiming her idea that she's the person in the right. film. Right,
0: it's the major red flag.
1: Yeah, yeah. automatically you're just like, uh, you don't match the body type, sorry. But that's kind of a weak thing, because I mean, you look at the image, and I mean, it could it, it's like kind of an action shot, you know, people are moving in the picture, she could have been hunched over, she could have been, you know... I've got it. Okay.
0: If this whole so month we've been talking about wild theories, uh-huh. she was a burgeoning makeup artist.
1: Oh yeah. So Gee. she put herself
0: in a in a in a in a plump suit, and then did herself up to look performance l- art. Really. Exactly. You know, this is the sixties. People are trying starting to experiment with that kind of thing. I think it's one hundred percent plausible.
1: You know, unfortunately, though, no one can corroborate her being there. Well, then there's that. Yeah. And here's (laughs) the other thing. The camera that she was using to photograph, she claims, was a camera called the Yashica Super 8 Zoom movie camera. Yashica. Okay. The thing about that camera is it didn't exist until 1967. So how can she claim to use this specific camera... That doesn't even exist yet at that point. So, obviously, point.
0: she's a time-traveling, burgeoning makeup artist.
1: <laughs> <laughs> she is a TARDIS. Duh. <laughs> so, here's the thing. She, you know, went year after year after year claiming that she used this camera, right? But then she went to the Assassination Records Review Board and totally said that she never said that. <laughs> she <laughs> retracted her statement. And you're just okay. like, uh, no, first of all, you made that statement to several authors... And you said that in a documentary that was made in 1988 called The Men Who Killed Kennedy. So check the documentary out, guys, and see what she says because, uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> so is she maybe just deranged that she like she goes on the record several times and says it and then all of a sudden oh denies everything she said?
1: God, you know, I really feel like she was someone who got caught up in the excitement of the assassination. And maybe she was there that day. You know, it's the idea of, oh my God, I was there. I want to talk about it. I knew Lee Harvey Oswald. Oh, yeah, you know. Oh, blah, blah, blah. Like I work for the CIA, you know, things like that. Like people just get so excited by all this stuff that they'll say whatever they can to get attention for it. And I think this is a really good example of that. She says that her friend introduced Oswald to her as my friend Lee Lee Oswald of the CIA. And um, the idea says that, you know, people will always say that they're with the CIA if they're they're kind of weirdos. So I think that's interesting that, you know, she'll claim to have known Lee Harvey Oswald and she'll claim that she was there. Um, But a lot of her story, unfortunately, is very inconsistent and um, false. So Beverly Oliver is not the babushka lady. I'm, I'm asserting that right now. But, you know, unfortunately, we'll never really know who this person was. And I think just having her kind of be a snapshot part of history is really important and unfortunate because we'll never really know what those pictures revealed and we'll never get the definite proof. So, yeah, that's interesting. (laughs) As
0: any good unsolved mystery goes, there's something, there's a humongous missing piece of the puzzle that Mm -hmm. just doesn't.
1: I mean, I think a part of me would like to believe that Beverly Oliver was the babushka lady or that this babushka lady was just someone who, you know, was an unfortunate bystander and she happened to take pictures, and maybe those pictures turned out really bad. Um, maybe they, they were just blurry mess-ups. Because, you know, you, you're in the moment of the actual assassination. I'm sure it was total chaos. I'm sure everything gets just out of control, right? So maybe she just threw them away thinking they were junk and just wanted to stay anonymous, to stay you know, inconspicuous and out of limelight. I can respect that, but in the wake of such an incredible tragedy that still has so much controversy. Right. I mean the assassination really is something that has so many conspiracy theories. We all I don't know if you guys saw the film JFK starring Kevin Costner but that film does a really good depiction of a lot of the um, controversies and conspiracies sure. that were that came as a result of the assassination. And yeah. actually, there is a scene featuring a woman who spoke about photographing that moment, and they're kind of making a reference to Beverly. Gotcha. Um, and because this character is a dancer and a singer, and she's you know talking about the assassination and whatnot, so this The Bush is, is a pretty. Elemental piece in the sure. mystery that is the assassination yeah. of John F. Kennedy.
0: And if you guys are interested in learning more about the conspiracy theories and stuff behind the JFK assassination, uh, the episode The Catholic JFK, which we did back in January of 2013, mm. um, addresses several of those too. Right so, on. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. It's kind of weird now that we're getting to the point where we're, we're now bookmarking ourselves. We're saying, "Oh, by the way, we talked about this in this episode too." So check it out. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Do it. Yeah. All right. Well, that's that's my spiel on the babushka lady. Would you like to spin the wheel again?
0: Yes, I <laughs> would love to spin the wheel again or wheel, if it's okay. Or. I know. We're approach not exactly the wheel. On. <laughs> A- approach the wheel with caution. Yeah. Right. <laughs> All right, wheel. Here we go. the devil's kettle
1: <gasps> dun, dun, dun. Well,
0: so what a juxtaposition going from from jesus to the, the devil all of a sudden you're and,
1: just making a full arc tonight aren't you <laughs> yeah yeah well so why is it
0: called the devil's kettle well for those who are native to northern minnesota uh it, this is something they've known about for a long time mm-hmm. um and nature made phenomenon that takes place in devil's kettle falls which is um, along Lake Superior's North Shore. So it's right south of the border of Canada. And uh, the Brule River runs through this border to this waterfall. And this takes place through Judge C.R. Magne State Park. Mm-hmm. And what happens is the Brule River forks off because of a rock formation. And one part goes off and becomes this lovely little waterfall. The other part also becomes a waterfall. But then it goes into this, this hole in the ground. They call it a kettle because it's just it's formed this little... It looks like, like a an, like natural an kettle. Wow. But we have no idea where the water goes after that, which oh is gosh. weird because, like, with all of modern science, <laughs> with everything we think we know about the Earth, we have no idea where this water goes.
1: Oh, man. There's so many theories. There's got to be.
0: <laughs> there are a couple theories, and they've all been disproven. <laughs> that's the funny oh, thing.
1: Oh, that's so frustrating. Yeah.
0: So the first theory out there of what this is I mean uh, there, this is like a geologist's like thesis statement almost right? you can get a, a whole doctoral degree probably trying to figure out this oh I'm to step sure out. one of them is that it f- sits on a fault line or mm-hmm. that, it, that it's because of the, the tectonic plates shifting that um, we don't see the water it okay. goes in between those
1: oh so all the stuff falls in between the fault line
0: which would explain why it doesn't ever reemerge to some other body Nothing of water
1: pops up in your backyard or whatever
0: right <laughs> However, um, what's baffling, though, is that the sheer quantity of water pouring into there wouldn't, it just, it wouldn't make sense for it to go into, into that. Because no other source of water is draining, necessarily. Huh. That's, what's even, that's what's even more absurd about it. One other theory about it is that it is a lava tube, uh, which would have formed beneath the falls in a subsurface layer of um, one of the many rocks there, which is uh, the basalts. And over time, the theory this theory posits that um, as water would fall, it would have eroded the surface and um, punched straight through into this ancient lava tube, therefore providing open access to the floor of Lake Superior. So, some people say it's actually trickling back into Lake Superior.
1: Wow. Basically, so forming it's... a giant
0: water fountain almost in a weird way.
1: That's so cool. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh, um, man. But again, the thing is that there's no way to prove it because. What they've tried doing to see where the water turns out is they've tried putting ping-pong balls down it. They've tried putting dye in the water. Mm. Uh, They've tried putting logs in it. And it doesn't turn up anywhere where they think it would naturally have turned up. doesn't
1: pop up in Lake Superior.
0: Nope. doesn't pop up in Lake Superior. Either the dye dilutes to such a minute amount that you can't detect it, or it just is not the same water. Um, Logs don't show up. And what what they really need to do is they need to probably put a GPS sensor. I was
1: going to say, tracking device. Yeah. (laughs) Throw a Batman gps thing. Just beep,
0: beep but beep, beep, knowing beep. it all of a sudden they're going to track it and all of a sudden it's going to go cold it's going to like oh, die and we'll never know where it can go I like what
1: they did in um Prometheus when they found that underwater alien chamber and it was just like a oh, tracking god. device and just went through and just kept going and Eric, it revealed Eric, this entire underground like spaceship oh mm, my god that must, is so cool <laughs> we,
0: we must tread very lightly when we're talking about the aliens on this podcast
1: <laughs> what if it is aliens
0: <laughs> uh, well, we've talked about that before uh, in the Jack the Ripper episode, but um, I don't know if you know this, but I'm actually scared to death of those aliens. So. Really? Yeah. The Xenomorphs scare the crap out of me.
1: Oh, that's yeah. too bad. Yeah. Well, okay. So here's my thing. I don't know if you guys have seen the film um, Jennifer's Body.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm glad you brought this up. Go ahead.
1: Yeah. So it's a film that was written by Diablo Cody, who is of uh, Juno fame. And uh, basically, it stars... <laughs> I'm sorry, this cracks me up. Okay, so it stars Megan Fox and Amanda Seyfried. And the premise of the film is that she... uh, Megan Fox is a um, kind of popular girl who gets possessed by the devil. (laughs) And uh, Amanda is her best friend and kind of plays off this counterpoint as, you know, good versus evil, right? That Jennifer starts killing off people and eating... People and doing lots of bad things and anyway the point is that the film is is set in minnesota and actually devil's kettle is used as a backdrop to the film and actually a major plot point because uh they end up throwing in a few things into the devil's kettle and the funny part is is i don't want to give away the ending but there's actually a scene where the stuff like pops up and uh it like pops up in a random sewer somewhere <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay so clearly this is more like a supernatural comedy
1: totally basically but okay. the fact is they used um the devil's kettle as basically the setting for the film and they kind of played they made fun of the idea that there is a point where all the things that you drop in devil's kettle do end up somewhere sure they don't just go back to into the center of the earth or whatever <laughs> right right right
0: well wait a second it's the temporal rift again.
1: Oh, no. Oh,
0: jeez. Let's <laughs> see who we get uh, get this week. <laughs> oh, my God. I, I know that beard anywhere.
1: Oh. Wait,
0: do you know who that is?
1: Is it Santa?
0: No, it's not Santa. It's Karl Marx. Hello.
1: <gasps> Hi.
0: <laughs> I have come with a very important message from the future, oh. which somehow
1: encapsulated me. You
0: don't Oh. in its propaganda uh, well, I would normally protest to its bourgeois tactics I do think that so you should go to Amazon.com as it says there's a wonderful marketplace where you can go and get lots of interesting books movies and various and sundry things from around the house
1: books, movies, and various sundry things from around the house? tell me more
0: well perhaps you should read my book The Communist Manifesto <laughs>
1: Oh, what a light reading choice. Thanks, Carl. It's only a
0: couple thousand pages. It's fine. You'll get through it in a year Eh, or so.
1: Give or take a few, yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, Mr. Marks, uh, it's definitely the most unusual request we've had on our uh, podcast. It's
1: nice to meet you, dude.
0: Yes, it was a (laughs) pleasure, and uh, we just hope that when the uprising occurs, you are on the winning side. Oh,
1: I'll be sure of that. I'll keep you up to date on the progress.
0: (laughs) Now I must go to to the other side, if you'll excuse me. I would be gone. Thank you. Oh,
1: bye. Well, that was cool.
0: Yeah, that was Man, interesting. I should go um, on Nerd
1: History more often. You get to meet these cool people. Absolutely,
0: yeah. And, you know, if you were to go and click on any of our affiliate links that are in any of our episodes, uh, we would get a small donation if you were to choose to buy something from Amazon.com. So that would be a fun... <laughs>
1: Instead of spending all your money on the Communist Manifesto. <laughs> exactly, because
0: who <laughs> wants to do that in America, right? Exactly. You know? Exactly. I'm I I, I I am a patriot, by the way. If the government is listening to this podcast, <laughs> hey I have,
1: man, I took my citizenship. I was never test. a member
0: of the Communist Party. <laughs> no. We should have we should have Joseph McCarthy on. That'd be that'd be amazing. We'll have to do that at some point.
1: You should hit him up. <laughs> yeah, you should hit
0: him up. Get the card. working on, on. Yeah,
1: right. Fire it up, man. <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh, okay, so sorry. Before we were derailed by. By Mr. Marks' uh, sudden and, uh... Intrusive appearance. In- exactly, Ugh, so... no. Well, why don't you give it another spin?
1: Oh! All right, this is cool. The Zodiac Killer.
0: Oh, oh. a Bay Area... <laughs> A Bay and Area mystery.
1: legend. Oh, man. Yeah. So I know I was talking about earlier how I have a fascination with um, serial killers and the mythology of that and the stories of those. And I just think it's all really incredible to dive into the mind and to understand the reasoning why and how they get away with it and what they do. And, oh, man. And um, one of the most incredible stories I have ever heard about and um, done some research on is the Zodiac Killer. And like Brian mentioned, yeah, it's a Bay Area legend and a Bay Area story, where um, the Zodiac Killer was a um, serial killer who committed crimes in Northern California in the '60s, and uh, from the '60s to the late '70s, so or excuse me, the early '70s rather, and his identity has never been discovered. So the mystery is who is this guy? He presented himself as the Zodiac. That was his his title. Um, Because he would send these letters to the San Francisco Chronicle, and he would send these letters that included um, cryptograms, and they were sent not only to the San Francisco Chronicle, but but to different Bay Area press outlets. And um, he wanted to gain popularity and and infamy for um, the letters, as well as claiming that he would commit all these murders. And um, it has been proven that he does have victims, and there are confirmed victims there's only seven of them that have been agreed upon by investigators. And they include couples, these, these pairings, which is interesting, I find really fascinating. Uh, most specifically, the first couple was uh, David Arthur Faraday, who was 17 years old, and Betty Lou Jensen, who was 16.
0: And this is the one that occurred at the drive-in, yes, right? Yes, this
1: was the one that occurred at the Lo- Lover's Lane. And mm-hmm. um, this was the first murder um, that was done on December 20th, 1968. And um, it happened in Benicia. So Solano County, right? And then he went on to murder another couple in 1969, which happened in Vallejo. And then That was one that
0: was outdoors, I think, right?
1: Um, I believe so. And you know what's interesting is that the um the man, Michael Renault Majot, who was nineteen, survived the attack. Didn't the
0: man survive the first shooting too, or were they both killed?
1: No, they were both killed in the first one. Okay. Um, but the second one he survived and I don't know um his whereabouts but Yeah, he was involved and, you know, obviously questioned and such, but they never could identify the person. There's a sketch out there, but then they talk about the possible suspects, and um, most notably, the biggest suspect that they talk about is um, Arthur Lee Allen. And Arthur Lee Allen has a huge connection to the case purely because a lot of his whereabouts and his notoriety um arises a lot of questions and in investigators. They've made a lot of connections. Um you can actually read up on it on this website called the Zodiac Killer or just zodiackiller.com and um there's a thing called the Arthur Lee Allen file. <laughs> yeah. Where the author of this website goes on to make all of these incredible connections to um Arthur Lee Miller or Arthur Lee Allen's whereabouts and um his reputation and apparently he was known as a kind of a creep. He's probably the only suspect that they've ever really um come Maybe close to. They've gotten to. really
0: close to, yeah.
1: Yeah, right? So, if you guys know anything about the Zodiac Killer, it's actually been the subject of a lot of controversy and a lot of um, public attention. Um, there's a lot of films out there that focus on the um the mystery. Most notably, one of my favorite films is actually um called Zodiac by David Fincher and it was made in 2007.
0: Yeah, great movie featuring yeah. also featuring Jake Gyllenhaal and Robert Downey Jr.
1: Yes, and yes. Um, Jake Gyllenhaal plays an interesting character because this character was one of the um, first people to actually kind of solve the cipher and to um, start to really decipher what his letters were saying. And if you go to that website that I mentioned, all the letters are actually included on there, and you can read them and see what this uh, this guy wrote. And um, there is a actually there is a claim that someone was able to decipher one of the letters, and it was done recently, actually. And this person actually did it because he was inspired by the David Fincher film. He saw the film and said, oh my gosh, I could do this, I could solve it. And it actually implicated Arthur Lee Allen in the letter. He writes his name in it. And the way that this person was able to decipher this letter is really incredible because he was able to... um, Kind of base it off of this number code system and this type of alphabet system where every, like, letter, like, first letter mentioned in the word, you count the alphabet three letters down. I don't know. It is very complex and incredible. And you wonder, like, how these people are able to do this. Um, t- Takes a lot of man hours.
0: <laughs> yeah. And some people's just their brain is good at, yeah. at decoding, like... The cipher for a letter mm-hmm. is, I mean, is complicated, but not impossible for the human mind totally. to, to figure out. So
1: Totally. And so as far as them trying to find the whereabouts of the Zodiac Killer, as recently as 2014, actually this fe- past February, um, a man named Louis Myers had confessed to a friend that he was a Zodiac Killer as of 2001. But he was dying from cirrhosis of the liver. So he told his friend to basically go to the cops and tell them his confession. And then apparently, though this friend had difficulties convincing the cops that it was this person. But there are actually some potential connections between Louis Myers and the Zodiac case. Myers apparently attended the same high schools as some of the victims, and he worked in the same restaurant as one of the victims as well. So he, um, this is interesting, had this, had access to the same sort of military boot whose print was found at the Lake Berryessa crime scene. So one of the crime scenes. Um, As a connection to him there. So there's also the idea that Myers was stationed overseas during a time when the Zodiac Killer um, stopped sending letters, which was between 1971 and 1973. So the idea that, you know, I mentioned a lot of the people that were targeted were couples. Um, Apparently Myers had been going through a bad breakup with a girlfriend, so he targeted couples. And uh, I guess authorities have um, started to investigate because it sounds pretty credible.
0: Yeah. There's also some weird other, tons of other weird theories, too. Yeah. Yeah, but Alan seems to be the one who was the most, or you said, that, sorry, not Alan, that this, this guy. This
1: most recent guy, but no, Arthur Lee Allen is probably the most um, famous or infamous, rather, yeah. uh, connection to the case. Um, he's actually featured in the Fincher film, and he has a pretty major role, and they actually are able to convince um, the audience of Alan being the Zodiac.
0: And he actually passed away in 1992 as well. So, yeah. so if that's the case, then the, it's a dead end.
1: We'll never know. Yeah,
0: but there's another really weird theory though that I, I didn't hear about this till recently. But apparently, there's a theory that Ted Kaczynski may have been the Zodiac <gasps> that's killer. That's
1: right. Yeah. yeah. Who, of
0: course, is the Unabomber for those who don't remember the mm-hmm. late 90s. Um, but he was a professor at UC Berkeley in 1968, so he would have been pitted in the area Ooh. around the time of the murders.
1: That's that's tricky. I wonder how they were able to discredit that. But I mean, it's Ted Kaczynski, so who knows?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I don't think the MO was quite the same. I don't think the letters had the same kind of format. Yeah, I think what they
1: were able to do also in Arthur Lee uh, Allen's case is match the handwriting. Exactly. Um, They said that he changed his handwriting around, but there are similarities. And I think the theory of the handwriting samples um, played a huge role in the case right and they really that's all they really had to go on right and
0: considering that kaczynski had a a substantial amount of his own handwriting because Mm -hmm. of his journal right they were able to pretty much i think match him up
1: yeah um, i assume so so um, i rather
0: mismatch them i I should say
1: oh and there's also an idea that um there they were able to get a partial dna profile from the saliva that was on the stamps and envelopes of the zodiac letters.
0: interesting
1: but Arthur Lee Allen didn't like the taste of the glue on the envelopes, so he never licked his own letters or whatever he would write. Like that—that that was according to his family. So that kind of discredits um, any possible DNA connections.
0: That Interesting.
1: Arthur Lee Allen could have to the case. Huh. And there there aren't any matches, apparently.
0: And they didn't match it to his family at all? The, no. The Interesting.
1: No, I didn't. Yeah. So the Zodiac case is really something that still baffles people to this day. Yeah. I mean.
0: And again, it's one of those murder mysteries that may never, again, may never end up being solved. Oh, man. Like, it's the one we did talk about with D.B. Cooper, with mm-hmm. Jack the Ripper. It's there's there's gotta be that one missing piece of evidence that puts everything together. Yeah, that is that's gotta come forward for it what to come through. What is
1: that missing piece? Oh man! Yeah, makes you wonder. That's why I think murder mysteries are so fascinating, and you know the topic of serial killers really is something that boggles me and and fascinates me because. These folks go to, you know, no end to cover their tracks. Or some of them, they want to be found. So they'll do things. They'll leave clues. They'll leave hints. I mean, the Zodiac Killer called in. I mean, he would send letters. He communicated directly with the media. And I think that says something to the psychology of this person, that he was really wanting to be caught, and he was playing a game with investigators. And, oh, man, that's tricky, tricky.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, totally. It is very disturbing when because I remember watching the
1: the Fincher Fincher movie,
0: yeah, Mm -hmm. which does uh, I think a decent amount of justice to it. Oh, absolutely, um, particularly in in the way it displays the murders. I mean, it's it, it is uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, particularly the second murder, the one where they, they hogtie the... Uh, oh, the, the couple yeah. by the lake, yeah. And that The one, Lake
1: Berias murder.
0: Yeah, yeah, the Lake Berias murder. Uh, that one was just... Oh, like That was the only scene in the movie that truly like scared mm-hmm. me. And to think about, wait, this actually happened. This person did this to these people, to people like this. It, it It's really, really unnerving. Yeah. Um, and it's really...
1: You know, these people Burning. are obviously, I mean, these, these serial killers are obviously sick individuals, um, but they have an agenda. And it makes you wonder, you know, <laughs> it makes you concerned about your own safety. Because, uh, I mean, I, I, I'm a nerds on film contributor, so I love film and television, right? I love talking about that. And I most recently um, became really enthralled with the television series True Detective, um, with Matthew McConaughey and um, Woody Harrelson.
0: Everyone's talking about that show It's now. a
1: brilliant brilliant depiction of the depth of insanity that some serial killers will go to and can be at because the serial killer m- featured in this series is really, really warped, man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> really warped. But the point I'm trying to make is um, there's this constant theme of you know light versus dark, right? You want to battle the darkness because the darkness is really the majority of what we have. The dark really outweighs the light. But then again, the light is still always constantly present. So in a way, the light can still win. In a way, we're always going to be able to find and to discover and to um, fight back against this ongoing tyranny that is people who decide to go on serial killer sprees, you know? Um, I think that's a really important thing to remember. <laughs> when, yeah. So you don't get caught up and wrapped up in the um, the chaos and the uh, the insanity that is, you know? Oh my God! They're always going to be serial killers. No, there's always going to be people who are going to solve the case, or at least stick to the case. You know, this happened what in you know so many years ago, and people it's it's still open. People are still constantly. Yeah. It's only about you know, 40, forty-five leads.
0: years old at this point. Yeah. So
1: it's still an open case. That means people are still working on it, and I think that's really a valuable thing to know and to rely on. That people will still work toward you know toward the end of time to be able to solve this. So that's, that's my, my spiel. No problem.
0: <laughs> well, all right, Will. So I've got one more turn left. Yeah. All right. Here we go. The Voynich manuscript. Mm. The vo- I, First of all, I had never even heard of this thing before this episode.
1: <laughs> Me neither. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, but let me let me boil it down for you guys. At least before we f- discover recent events. It's a book in an unknown alphabet that has no connection to any known language.
1: <laughs> tricky tricky.
0: It sounds like complete nonsense, doesn't it? <laughs> but in fact, it's um it's a very interesting book. We know it's a it's a probably some sort of herbological um book because the book, even though it's the text is almost was almost until recently completely undecipherable, it does have at least six sections to it. And uh, one is for botanicals and it uh, it talks about 113 different plants that are there. That like I guess I just counted the pictures. Nice. Uh, two astronomical and astrological drawings for astral charts. Uh, including zodiac symbols, interestingly enough, <laughs> uh, such as Pisces, uh, Taurus, and Sagittarius. Nice. And also nude females emerging from pipes or chimneys. Okay. Hey, All right. So,
1: <laughs> whatever um, gets you off, man. Qu- uh,
0: <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, qu- quite a loose interpretation of astronomy. Um, <laughs> And uh, 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 the third would be uh, a biological section, which talks about drawings of many of, again, female nudes, uh, mostly with swelled abdomens. Okay. Hey. Interesting. Very, very absurd uh, descriptions here. Mm-hmm. Um, the fourth section is an elaborate array of nine cosmological medallions, many of which are uh, across several folded folios depicting possible geographical forms. That's so cool. Interesting. Uh, Fifth and the more, I think the one that kind of leads us in the the direction of how we've discovered what it was based on, uh, the pharmaceutical drawings of over 100 uh, different species of medicinal herbs. And finally, um, what they think are possibly recipes. So, because we see plants, because we see what looks like the description of a recipe, because we see all these different things, it sounds like the book has some sort of medicinal purpose
1: to mm, it. But then why the mysterious script?
0: And well, so let's talk a little bit about how it became into existence. Yeah. Well, first off, the name, the Voynich, uh, is from Wilfred Voynich, who acquired the book in 1912. Um, supposedly, though, but before it had gotten to him, the Codex had belonged to uh the Emperor Rudolf II of Germany, uh and was who, who was also Holy Roman Emperor from fifteen seventy six to sixteen twelve. Mm. And he had he paid paid uh six hundred gold ducats for it, and believed that it was the work of this guy, Roger Bacon. But um mm, Bacon It's actually more than likely that who he'd actually written the manuscript was an astrologer uh from England named John D. who uh, apparently owned the manuscript along with other Roger Bacon manuscripts. So uh What's interesting is the way that Dee described the book, he said, there's a book containing nothing but hieroglyphics, which um, it's in old English. So um, stood upon him uh, much time upon, but I could not hear that he could make it out. So for centuries, this has already been, I don't know what this says, but I think it's important. Yeah, so let's, basically. So let's keep it. It's really, really weird. Um, but there's, there was for a long time, there was a theory that it was a hoax. And one was this guy, a computer scientist named Gordon Rugg, argued that it was a 16th century hoaxer who uh, either tried to con the emperor out of a large sum of money. And and this guy, uh, Rugg, thinks it was created by this Englishman named uh, Edward Kelly. But there's also another scientist named Sergio uh, Torricella who suggested that the manuscript was actually an alchemical herbal meaning uh basically it was a book used by doctors to make it look like they knew what they were talking about
1: oh man
0: <laughs> i mean keep in mind this is the 16th century no this is sure. a point in time where literacy was was definitely at a much lower rate than it was now so people will look at a book and like oh well that looks like it's big important stuff and there's pictures of plants so it must be real
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> um, apparently it was not uncommon for a doctor to have just this book it's a piece of scenery, just a, just a what? prop there, just to show that they had a reference point, so they they could Full claim. Full of to know chicken if they were...
1: scratch, though. <laughs>
0: exactly. Uh, cool. Interestingly enough, though, that this was the book that inspired H.P. Lovecraft to write the book The Necronomicon. Wow. Because The Necronomicon, for those who don't know, is that book that is in the language that no one understands, but yet has these apparently supernatural powers upon it.
1: Crazy. So
0: yeah, right, right, and pretty much the story would would end there. If it wasn't for a recent scientific breakthrough. And this was like, I was about to go to the episode tonight not knowing this. Uh-huh. And thankfully I was just kind of talking about it with a coworker and like, oh yeah, they 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 decoded they that. And like what what? <laughs> Booyah. <laughs> my whole my whole planning ruined. <laughs> but they actually haven't decoded all of it. Uh. But what they have determined is that this book is not complete gibberish, as wow. this other scientist would say. And here's how we know that. Stephen Bax, who is a professor of applied linguistics, in the University of Bedfordshire in England, what he did was quite ingenious. He took all, found all the proper names in a text because he's a professor of linguistics. I think he would at least identify certain words that would stand out from other words, words that look like names of some kind. So he looked at those words and what he pretty much did was he wrote them all down and obviously there was many of them so this is a massive undertaking. And then he was able to, by looking at the pictures of the plants, figure out what plants they, they were, plants they were referring to. So then he goes and he looks at these plants and he looks at every known word for these plants across all the languages. Mm -hmm. And because of that, he is able to find words that match up.
1: Oh, wow.
0: Yeah. Uh, Among the words he identified were um, Taurus alongside with a picture of the seven stars. Also the word uh, Cantiron, which is a picture of uh, alongside a picture of the plant Centauri, uh, a known medieval herb. Hmm. Uh, I mean, other words, uh, juniper, Taurus, coriander, centuria. Uh, Chiron, uh, Brain, uh tons and tons of words. So case in point, he figured out all the plant names, wow. he, uh, all the plant words in there, and, and doing so, proving once and for all that it is not gibberish, that mm. there was actually some sort of purpose to this. Yet we still don't know. We still won't know the other words, at least. But that's a huge stepping stone. Yeah. Because if we know the basic structure of those words, I mean, I'm not a professor of linguistics. I have a friend who actually who is a doctoral candidate in that. But cool. if you can at least find the sequencing of certain letters at a certain point in time, that gives you at least some footprints that you can follow to get yeah. to the other letters and the other meanings of, of
1: That's how they the decipher words. the zodiac letters. I mean, that's the same idea. It's the same concept. Yeah. That you find a pattern and you make inferences off of that initial finding. And that right there gives you... More answers and more evidence towards you know following a certain style of decoding something, right?
0: Right, exactly, and that's also how well, I know. Again, I know if Eric were here, he would mention <laughs> the Rosetta Stone.
1: Yeah, absolutely. right.
0: the The fact that it was hieroglyphics versus the hieratic texts in, yeah. in Egyptian, which they were able to compare to Greek, and because of the similarities between those three, mm-hmm. you know, they were able to decipher by using Greek to figure out ancient Egyptian, and which nice. is that was a huge leap forward right this is not unlike that same situation we will eventually figure out what this thing has to say
1: wow that would be cool yeah <laughs> absolutely know, it's just
0: some cookbook like seriously
1: <laughs> it's a medieval cookbook <laughs> like
0: we thought this priceless artifact it's <laughs> just some dude's cookbook and he decided just to write in funny funny letters
1: i mean if you look at the manuscript itself it's very pretty i mean the, the writing is very poetically flowing and it has it a
0: very calligraphy look to it yeah kind
1: of looks like elvish <laughs>
0: It does look a little bit like Elvis, but you will So it makes yeah. you
1: wonder, was it, like, is that proof of Middle-Earth existing in, in a time in, in space and maybe some troll Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> went
1: to writing and maybe his manuscript outri- mis- misplaced in the space-time continuum and just ended up in the hands of this Voynich guy and... There you have it. I mean, who knows? <laughs> right. right, I'm running free with my theories here, guys. <laughs> it's okay.
0: Well, when we, we we've had so many crackpot theories in this on this month, that I think that's that so. Why couldn't acceptable. Middle
1: Earth be one of them?
0: <laughs> yes, yes. In fact, I'm pretty sure that if we were to decode this, we would figure out the way to defeat Sauron.
1: uh duh.
0: <laughs> yes. <clears throat> well, okay. So you know what? Let's let's give the wheel one last spin. Okay, okay? it's your turn.
1: All right. Um, all right. All right. I'll go for it. it wait, where'd it go?
0: you know the wheel's done this before to be honest seriously yeah yeah it has it does have a kind of a mind of its own it just kind of like if it, i guess i think the wheel is it slowly develops a consciousness i think it's in its teenage years or something because it's being kind of this rebellious teenager
1: this is like that movie Smart House from the nineties, that Disney Channel movie where the house got smarter than the people and just rebelled. Man, this is this is the rise of the machines. I'm I'm telling you right now. Skynet, Skynet. is real. Yeah,
0: Skynet's real. Yeah. <laughs> and it all starts with the wheel of history.
1: It is. We'll it's an uprising. Wheel
0: of history today. Tomorrow, Skynet.
1: <laughs> <laughs> We're calling it now, guys. <laughs> well, the wheel took off.
0: Fine wheel. You know what? Whatever. <laughs> Have it your we'll see way. See you next time. Yeah. This was a lot of fun, though.
1: This was great. Oh, man. So much stuff and facts and mysteries. Oh, I love it. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And, uh, folks, again, we'd love to hear some of your insight on these topics. You can give that to us by our website, com, and, of course, our social media outlets Mm -hmm. on Facebook and Twitter. And if you are interested in engaging with us personally, you can follow us on our personal Twitter accounts. I'm at Brian Moriarty. And I'm at Roxy Noberry. We have, like, the most boring... Twitter names—it's just our names. My
1: Twitter, my old Twitter name used to be Roxy Fox. <laughs> oh, see, so that
0: actually that is kind of cool.
1: It's cute, but I grew out of it because I was just kind of like, eh, "I'm not a fox; I'm a human being."
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or you could have done Foxy Roxy—that would have been. That like, would have
1: been way too corny, dude.
0: <laughs> no, I you know, never underestimate the power of a corny name. Oh,
1: give me a break!
0: <laughs> you've gotten some numbers with that. I swear to God. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Whatever. And of course,
0: you know you don't want to get someone's phone number over Twitter. That's like
1: no, <laughs> but you know what? You know what I want to do? I want to find out who the Babushka Lady is. So if you're out there, tweet us.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you can find her at BabushkaLady17. <laughs> uh, uh,
1: exactly.
0: <laughs> uh, or at photographer 4 Yeah, right? Uh, <laughs> so, it was ridiculous. I'm just being silly.
1: Um, <laughs> no, really. We yeah. want to find you. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs>
0: If you have it in your heart and your wallet, please by all means, uh, you know, head over to our Neuronomy page. And you now have more than one option to help us out. Mm-hmm. If you have the money, you can give us a donation. Um, you can also click on one of our ads and help us out with our one of our affiliates.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: C- case in point, help us help you because we wanna we want to keep producing these podcasts. <laughs> I totally yeah. stole from Jerry Maguire. I there. was gonna
1: say, I was gonna show me the money. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, you know, Roxy, thank you so much for being on tonight it was really really fun
1: thank you brian for having me on <laughs> no problem
0: and uh and listeners until we meet again stay nerdy tune into us next week same nerd time same nerd channel nerdonomy.com
1: see ya Are
0: you, are you sure <laughs> are you sure you don't own heels
1: you know what I don't because heels are stupid and they hurt and they do nothing to advance the feminist agenda of women being able to do their own thing in shoes that are comfortable. And what's the, what the point of wearing heels? I don't understand. No, 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 no. Let me talk. Let me see. Let me give you my piece. I saw an episode of Oprah. Okay, Oprah had a whole segment about comfortable heels and i thought bs not going to happen in a million years heels are just not comfortable they're totally created by men for men's enjoyment and not for women to be able to be able to be functioning human members of society no so no heels no
0: can we back up a second why because you said <laughs> that heels hurt
1: yes they hurt
0: how would you know that unless you've worn them
1: ah <laughs>